Next question comes from Tyler Green, DC, who asks a question of our favorite jacuzziers. Um, <laughs> will Rory and Caro get hitched? What other tennis couples would you er, propose? Courtney, do you see bells? Do you hear bells for Rory and Caro? I don't. I mean, I think that they both kind of realize they're quite young. They're very young. You know, so I, I think that they're, per- they're two pretty level-headed kids, and they have a good thing going. So. No, I mean, I don't, I, I would be surprised if, like, by the end of 2013, there was, like, a ring involved. Um, right. 2014, so, I wouldn't say that, though. Yeah, 2014, maybe, but 2013, nah. I, you, have an, you have a good thing, you know, and um, they don't need to be married at that age, I, I think. So, So yeah, so that's how I would come down on that. Okay, other tennis couples? Well... But Caroline and Rory are not a tennis couple. No, they're not a tennis couple. This is, this is a different. Oh, you can you can you can go outside. Maria Sharapova and Bradley Cooper. I mean, that doesn't really make sense, but you know, it would work. <laughs> okay. Is he tall okay. enough for her? No, he's so not. Yeah. See, that doesn't work then. So next question comes from Relim J, who asks us about British tennis, saying the LTA awards full funding to four good earning doubles players but to only three of gb top 20 men would it happen anywhere else question mark yeah no it absolutely would well okay hold on because i assume that the kind of point of the question is like how come the lta is not supporting more of britain's singles players Mm-hmm. okay or 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 it could be saying that it's impressive they show so much support to doubles well, exactly. Okay, yeah, two two flips take a, of the coin. Take it both ways. Yeah, no, I mean, I at least, at least the way that I initially read the question, um, I kind of thought, like, actually, you know, three of GB's top 20 men, that's pretty generous from the LTA. Yeah, because number two... Is James Ward. Who is ranked outside the top 200. Right. Yeah. And then number three, whatever. I mean, it's still outside of the top 200. Um, so for the, for the, the British Federation to be continuing to kind of support um, a player that's, look, I, I like James Ward. Um, he played a great match at Wimbledon. He's got a great story. Father, you know, his dad's a cab driver, all these sorts of things. Like, should he be getting full funding from the LTA? Questionable. Like at some point you kind of have to just look and be like, what exactly are we paying for here? Yeah. Paying for a top 200 player. Like, come on. Like, that's, that's a bit ridiculous, you know? And, you know, especially when you have, like, somebody like Tomek, who's in, like, the top 70. Getting he's getting his funding. Yeah, his funding is getting cut by Tennis Australia, who is a guy outside of, I mean, separate and apart from his ranking, is a guy who tennis pundits and, and tennis people believe has the capacity to make, like, slam semis. And win a slam. Slam quarters. Win a slam in, like, you know, a few years, you know? Yeah. For, like, for the record, the actual British number two is Jamie Baker, who is oh 247. Right. James Ward is 250. 247 and 250. That's what you're talking about with the with the LTA in terms of who they're supporting. And while that's great, like on, on a, just a personal human level, I'm like, I'm happy to know that there are players who are like ranked that low who can like make a living. Yeah. Because their federation 
can support them. I hope I hope that when they go out for dinner at Challenger, so they pick up everybody else's tab. Precisely. Because it's it's uneven. It's not commensurate with their results right. whatsoever. Right. And tennis, one of the things that's cruel about tennis is it really is a meritocracy. It's a sink or swim thing. If you don't win matches for yourself, eventually you got to quit because yep. it's just not financially viable, which doesn't happen yep. in team sports. The same and that's where, but that's where the, the 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 federations come in. Yeah. Because if you just happen to be, you know, a I, I don't. I'm hesitant to even say mediocre. I mean, if you're ranked outside of the top 150 to me or top 200, I mean, you're. What exactly are you doing? Um, and maybe that's cruel and unfair, and that's fine. But well, there there is a break-even point that exists somewhere just on the pure finances part of it. Because tennis is an expensive sport in terms of output, in terms of travel, stuff like that. Sure. So if you're at a level, and I don't know exactly where that line exists, and it probably varies based on a few things, but if you're at a le- a ranking where your expenses routinely consistently exceed your, you know, income, then it's probably not working out. Right. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that like, I mean, because the tweet says three of Britain's top 20 men, that's a, that's a deceptive stat. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Right. Because like, you know, one of those men is ranked number three in the world and just want to slam and is the face of British tennis. And, and, and the you're, other, no, you're not oh, talking about uh, Jonathan Mary, are you? I am not. I am not. And shockingly, I'm not talking about Jonathan Mary. And the other two are ranked outside of the top 200. So, you know, while I don't begrudge them getting a paycheck from their own federation to play ITFs and, and challengers and all that sort of stuff. I mean, no, it would not happen in any other federation. No. It would not. Take it from the other and, side about... So go ahead and finish that thought. No, no. I mean, I just think, and and that's, you know, consistently what is the critique of the LTA, um, as far as I can tell from, from kind of the British press. Um, you know, like obviously, like you know, I'm an American tennis journalist. I don't really care what the LTA is doing, no. so I don't really like pay attention to it. But obviously, and they all pay so much attention to the LTA. They just obsess Brit- about the it. amount of attention the British press pays to LTA is so, for better or for worse probably mostly for worse, it's so much more than the American press pays right. to the USTA. Like, the USTA does things, and we're like, okay. Like, we, we throw our hands up in the air when the USTA says, like, one of our juniors is overweight. Like, that's what we con- we concern ourselves with. Like, we don't really think about funding issues generally. Um, not, not usually, no. Not usually. So, you know, we're, we're, you know, from the American perspective, we're frazzling about the USTA support of a player like Donald Young, who's ranked outside the top 100, but is still ranked ahead of like the second and third British tennis player in the world yeah. and a bunch of other players. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm just generally convinced that, that it would not happen anywhere else. I think that a lot of it has to do with just the LTA structure. The LTA is obviously very cash rich. They have a lot of money that they can use that they should, they need to use in order to kind of justify the money that they get. Wimbledon gets a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it just it just wouldn't happen everywhere else. And then there's a separate debate to be had about whether or not it should be that way. No. Like, should federations be supporting players that are ranked outside the top 200 or shouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not making especially, like... especially not young players. Right. We're not talking about someone like Tomich even, you know, two years ago, who was someone highly touted, really thought people make it to the top. We're talking about 
you know, the reality of it is current day Jamie Baker. Right. In this economy, quote unquote. I like to think that players can, you know, make a living as tennis, that people can make a living as tennis players. It's sort of a nice idealistic thing, but doesn't fit with the sort of economics of the game on a realistic level. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's difficult because, like, when you, if you come from a, a federation like the LTA in particular, um, you know, maybe Tennis Australia, maybe the USTA, like the three largest, like, kind of, and the FFT as well, the French uh, Tennis Federation, you know, very profitable uh, federations. Uh-huh. You kind of just end up having these people, like, you know, Anne Kiantavong, for example, like, kind of not. I like I like her game, and you know, like, I, but you know, she's able to live a pretty nice life just because she's a British tennis player. Yeah, no, it's it's all you know, luck of birth, right? Or essentially, or unless you move somewhere. I mean, yeah, the things that I mean, and there are examples of it that have you know shown what it can do. I mean, you see what what Barbara Lepchenko was able to do this year with USTA support. Exactly. You know that she never would have been able to do without that. And so it really sort of did unleash potential that no one knew was there. And uh, so it works both ways. Um, But there's also obviously players like uh, Svetlana Parankova or something who's not going to get a lot of support, we don't think, from her federation on the same level. Well, she might get some, actually, because she's a pretty big deal there. That's a better example. I don't know. Ana Tadishvili, who's not going to get a lot of support from the Georgian Tennis Federation, which is probably... Not to the a, extent not there a is a Georgian tennis yeah, to the there isn't even as one. So <laughs> yeah. she's got to look for different ways to do that. And players, you know, do find ways of finding sponsors and stuff. When you have results, it can be done. Um, not, you know, non-Federation national sponsors. But when you have results, I mean, Anna Tatashvili is ranked ahead of Laura Robson. Yeah, last time I checked the, the ranking. Which means that she's inside the top 60. Yeah. And you have players like, again, like James Ward or Jamie Baker, like getting full funding from the LTA. Like, what exactly is going on there? Like, why? Yeah. You know, like, what exactly are you valuing, I suppose? And again, like, exactly like you said, like, to the extent that a, te- a, a tennis player can make a living being a professional tennis player, playing challengers and ITFs or, like, whatever, like, bless. Like, I'm not here to, like, take money out of somebody's pocket. No. But across the board, it does seem a bit unfair. Indeed. Next question, speaking of Svetlana Parankova, Jess MCC20 asks, is it weird that I want another Parankova versus Venus Williams at this year's Wimbledon? It is not weird. It is the opposite of weird. It is. It is what is pure. However, however, I would think it would be like the awesomest final. I don't want to see it like first week. I want those two in the final. That'd be interesting. Because those are two of like the the true like grass specialists of the last decade in their own weird ways. Exactly. And I feel like Parankova, with the win she's pulled off at Wimbledon, she deserves a final. Not that anyone deserves anything, quote unquote, in tennis. Um, but I think that just her the way that she manages to beat people, I, I find fascinating. Do Do you not consider um, Serena and Petra to be grass specialists? Not in the same way because they both had great results on other services. They both won they're just, Madrid. They're just for good, they're just good tennis players. Yeah, and not that Venus is not a great tennis player, but Parankova, what she did in 2010 when she made the semifinal out of nowhere 
That was shocking. And then backed it up. Backed it up. Not backed Venus it up again. Did a really good job of backing it up in 2011. And I also want to see if Venus will adjust in in 2013 if they play this year. Odds are they won't. But if they do, because Venus did not adjust in 2011 and lost by the exact same scoreline of like six two six three or yeah. six three six two or something, and that was not impressive by her. Although obviously now that we know all the stuff about Shogrins and whatever, we don't know of what course. was necessarily going on there. But you can't put asterisks on all her results because of that. So that was a mind-boggling second consecutive loss for her yeah. at her prime tournament. Uh, yeah, so I do want to see it again from both their perspectives. I love for it to be a late-round match. And yeah, I just think it'd be cool if we had somebody break out as a surface specialist with a big result on one of the two tours. I mean, isn't isn't that like the re- the biggest thing? Like, you know, like we talk about, I mean, obviously you and I have talked, uh, you know, online uh you know, whether on the toss or, or here on the podcast or, but we definitely talked about offline of just the desire to, to see surface specialists, to see if like these great players, like, you know, like whether it's a a Roger Federer or a Serena Williams or like whoever to be able to compete with a player who just kind of really understands what that surface does. And it almost has Um, to be clay. And that was really what it was in the old days. It was, or even not in the old days in the last decade, early part, you have these Argentinian guys who make the semis out of, of Roland Garros out of nowhere. That doesn't happen anymore. You have people, I'm trying to think who could even be a candidate for this now. Someone like, I don't know, Fonini or Montanez or something out of nowhere really makes a deep, deep run at the French Open. Which sounds ridiculous. Which sounds ridiculous because it doesn't happen anymore, but it used to right. happen all the time. Yeah, it used to, re- it used to happen. And uh, someone like Tanisugar making a deep run at Wimbledon could have happened in the old days. Uh, <laughs> Tammy. Tammy, Tammy, yeah. Tanisugar. I don't know, like a Sir Volleyer type doing well at Wimbledon one year. The way it used to happen with, uh, like, Jonas Bjorkman, I think, had a deep run several years ago there. Made the semis or something. Yeah. Uh, that just doesn't happen nice. anymore. And nice. uh, it, would be, it would be good. It would add- it would add intrigue. We need we need sort of need those stories. That was what was so cool about what Janovitz did at Paris. Right. It was like that. And we just get so little of that now. So that'd be cool. That's that'd be a wish to have somebody emerge. And the French is a place where it happens. Especially okay. if let's say Nadal is not back at full strength this year. Uh yet we we don't know. Such an X factor with him right now with his health. Um yes. but yeah, if he comes back and or if he you know, if someone door open for a i don't know leonardo mayor wants to make the fun i mean you know not gonna happen but if it did i would not object all right let's just do this question in full which we alluded to earlier uh jess mcc20 asks which if any wta player do you think could next get the career grand slam go ben so let's talk about who's on the table here uh, first of all, we have every player who's one zero, which is all of them, almost all mm-hmm. of them. Then we have Azarenko, who's won just the Australian. Mm-hmm. We have Kuznetsova, who's won the French and the U.S. Open. We have Venus, who's won Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. We have Ivanovic, who's won just the French. We have Stoser, who's won just the U.S. Open. We have Kvitova, who's won just Wimbledon. We have Lina, who's won just the French. Missing anybody? Schiavone won the French. Schiavone won the French, but that's not happening i know no. but yeah <laughs> you asked I, so i answered you, i appreciate the answer uh courtney which if any of these players do you think will be next to get it kvitova that's be my answer as well she can play on all surfaces um she's won what is arguably the hardest one to win in terms of like specialization 
to me, which is the which is Wimbledon. And as we discussed before, like I think that 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 clay, I I don't actually I don't know if we discussed this before. Maybe this is like a remnant of me just watching her tennisography on Tennis Channel a few hours before. But I, her coach, I can hear that. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I know it's great. It's great. But her coach, uh, uh, David, said that you know, aside from grass, that that he thinks that clay is her best surface, and it's just a matter of her kind of like believing that. So if you can win. Wimbledon and the French, then you've really put yourself up to really being able to win the two hard courts, right? Like, that's, you know, that's, you what, that's the order it all went in, right? You know, like so. If you can do that, then 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 that's a thing. So, you know, there's there's no reason she can't win the Aussie. Like we've discussed, I think in the last podcast. Like for me, in terms of my what if moment of 2012 was what if Kvitova wins the semifinal against Sharapova at the Aussie Open uh, last year? Yeah. I think that that the Aussie suits her game. I think the U.S. is a little bit different just because of the whole atmosphere of it. You know, it's, it's probably going to be the hardest one for her to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's it's Petra or bust. I mean, and she just has the game, man. Like watching her like tennisography thing, where obviously they show a lot of highlights, and then after that, you know, I went onto YouTube and and watched a bunch of her highlights as well. Like even in matches that she lost, like the match she lost against Serena this year in the quarterfinals of the Wimbledon. She has the game. Yeah. She just has to put it together and she is and she's already proven that she's capable of putting it together in a two week period. Yeah. No, she's definitely and she's won big titles where all the four slams are. I mean she's won and she's she won young. she won Madrid when it was still on red clay, although it's right. obviously wonky. She won Brisbane, which is the big Australian warm up. She can win indoors, she can win, she can win on yeah. Yeah, she's she's proven that she's there and she's young. And the, she's got the, the big game. thing is that she's young. Yeah. She has time to get it done and and I would really encourage people to watch her tennisography on Tennis Channel. I mean, uh primarily because I think that one of the more kind of underrated aspects of of Petra is that people kind of really forget that she's even though she's like whatever, she's 2021, 20, 21, 22 maybe. Mm-hmm. Um that she's actually about three or four years younger in tennis career terms because she didn't think that she could be a professional tennis player until she was 16. And she was not a child prodigy. She was not a child prodigy. At 16 years old, that, at 16 years old is when she committed to playing tennis. Which as is a unbelievably late when you think right. that Ridiculously someone late. like uh, Laura Robson won Junior Wimbledon at 14. Right. Hingis was, you know, turning pro at 14 and winning stuff right. capriati obviously 13 that's and a different even, era but, but still but yeah but even currently like you have like a uh you know talking about one of our mascots yulia putin seva you yeah. know like she she's work you know she's been working towards it and she's on the cusp of being the youngest at 17 being the youngest player in the top 100 she's at 106 so you know like you have these players who have really kind of committed their lives at a very young age to this this sport and with Petra, she really hasn't. It's you know she committed when she was 16, 17 years old, and the results came very, very quickly. But a, a separate and aside from kind of her age, she also just, as people have heard me say before on this podcast, like she has the game. Yeah, she has the game to beat anybody, except arguably Serena at their best. And even then, I think if they're at the, both at their best, uh, Petra will win. You know, two out of ten. Right, exactly. Well, I, I think it's actually closer. I think at their best, I think Petra wins three out of five. 
Whoa. Um, yeah, I do. I genuinely believe that. Um, so, you know, I think that Kvitova is the next one. I, you know, obviously the obvious choice might be Azarenka. Yeah. Um, but I don't see her being able to do it on grass. I'm not really sure she has the clay. The thing, with, the thing with Azarenka is that she won her first one and her only one to date on a relatively neutral surface, which means that she'd have to adjust in both directions right. to win on both clay and grass. And it's not impossible, but ba- when it's happened, um, I think people who've won career slams recently, I think about this, have all started on faster surfaces and won slower later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Agassi won his first one at Wimbledon, won the French last. Serena sort of won them all at once uh, during the Serena Slam. Sharapova. Sharapova started at Wimbledon, did the hards in the middle, won French last. So I think that's sort of the route to do it. And when you do it the other way, like uh, Ennin couldn't do it. She couldn't get Wimbledon, even when it was her last uh, peg remaining. So, yeah. So that makes sense to me. Now this question comes from Ova Fanboy, who asks... Referring to our last episode, uh, if Bartle or Bellucci are the Irani of 2013, who will be the Kesha, aka hot mess, of next season? Now, Courtney, I've tried to enlighten you um, <laughs> and sort of proselytize about Kesha to sort of show you the, the glittery light that is her and her music. And I've resisted, Ben. You resisted vehemently. Vehemently. Yeah. Why? Why not give in to Kesha? Because I cannot. Okay. Because I just, you know, like, I am set in my ways when it comes to music. I, I generally speaking, don't love pop music. I can appreciate a good pop song. And to that end, Ben, when you forced me to listen to so much Kesha um, when we were in Cincinnati, like, I can, I can walk away from that acknowledging that, like, okay, Kesha can do a good pop song. But I don't respect pop. Okay. So it's not really my bag right so yeah so but in terms of like the hot mess i think tom Tomich is an early leader in this category well right. yes Tomich is definitely the early leader for the men the things um, you catch us things about are pretty much things that bernard Tomich does on a rooftop <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah no it's special 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 stuff um but no i mean I, the name that came that jumped out in my head was kuznetsova that's yeah that's probably right. Although Kesha, Kesha has sort of a, I don't know, Kesha has more of a sort of self, uh, not, the, not that Kuznetsova's tennis can't be self-destructive. Yeah, I think I think Tomich is the right answer. Kuznetsova's a good pick. Yankovic certainly has her Kesha moments, if you want to phrase JJ it. JJ does, way. for sure. If for nothing else but the makeup and the glitter. Right, there's a lot of, they shared love of glitter, for sure. For sure. How did, how did, how did Yankovic get so glittery in her prime? Do we know? It was simply an artistic decision. Okay. She just decided to be glitter. And as one of the, the players that is uh, unapologetic about wearing makeup on court, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, she just kind of owned it. I respect that. It was her thing. Yeah, other players could fall apart. That's probably about it. We never know. We, we never really know. Who could did you be say? Pavs. Pavs. Yeah. Avliachenkova. I, I, I think Pavs is a buy for me at this at her current price. At her current price, yes. But if you bought her in 2009, you are No, she was a hot struggling. commodity then. You were struggling. Yeah. 
So that's those are our answers. But we appre- I appreciate the Kesha injection into the show. I'm just gonna say. I do. For the record, I do not. Yeah. Thank you. By the way, her new album just came out on December on December fourth, and it's been getting very good reviews. I'm just gonna put that out. But say what you told me. I'm saying that I'm not sure why it's getting such great reviews because I don't think it's as good as her previous brilliance. You guys have to understand that like Ben actually like genuinely loves Kesha. It's, it's you know, it's I wouldn't I wouldn't use the L word quite yet. I would say <laughs> I sort of like like her better. Enough to force me to listen to her on every single drive to the site. Okay, it was only like three of them. In Cincy? It was only like three of the seven commutes that we had to listen to Kesha. Oh. The other ones were reserved for Alexander Reebok. It was just, uh, you guys, rescue me. It was brutal. I'm sorry I provide free door-to-door transport for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this question comes from TJC05, who asks, of this year's winners, who do you think is most likely to successfully defend their Grand Slam titles next year? Oh, that's, a great cho- that's a great question. That's a good question. Uh, let's start with the men. Rafa. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, explain. I have a lot. I have a lot of faith in Rafa in the comeback. I think that um, you know, if I had to look at the eight, you know, the not eight winners because obviously Serena won two, but the seven winners of the major titles, uh, twenty twelve, mm-hmm. that most likely to defend. I gotta go Rafa because he is just that good on freaking clay. Yeah, but we don't we don't necessarily know Rafa three. I think this would be almost a three point situation. Yeah, this would point. be this would be Rafa three point But but no, nah, man. Like, I think that when he if he comes back, it's because he's ready to come back. If he doesn't play the French, he doesn't play the French. But like, if he takes the court in round one, he's still my pick. Okay. But and and more so than any other of the three. Yeah, yeah. More so than Murray. More so than Fed at Wimbledon and. My 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 pick my pick is Djokovic in Australia. Yeah, I was gonna say like just a little bit more so than Djokovic in Australia, but yeah. Just because I think I was so impressed with how Djokovic finished the year in London. Mm-hmm. I thought that was mm-hmm. a very emphatic performance oh, by fair. him in a play in a tournament that doesn't really suit him. Although it was slower this year, it did seem like. And going back to something that he should own, which is a slow hard court in Australia, and he's won it three times now. Yeah. And it just seems like his sort of thing. And uh, yeah, so he's my pick. And it's the soonest one, so I think it's easiest to predict. Fair. On terms, uh, Federer, probably the least. Well, Murray's probably the least likely, just because he's only won one slam in his career. Yeah. And we don't know how he's going to follow up. Uh, Federer next, and then Nadal, I guess. Federer and Nadal are probably about the same. I think on theirs, just because I don't just because Rafa, I think is a wild card. I think the most important tournament for Rafa in a lot of ways this year is Monte Carlo. If he gets Monte Carlo, if he does his Monte Carlo thing and just, you know, dominates like he always does there, then I think all is right in Rafa land. If Monte Carlo goes wrong somehow for him and he loses, that could set off a lot of doubt in his mind. And he really is a a confidence player, especially with his health. I could see if he loses Monte Carlo, I could see him not playing the French Open. What? That's my bold prediction. Alright, that's a solid bold prediction. So there we go. We were asked earlier to make bold predictions 2013. Which is just saying, ask us to be wildly wrong about things, which we are happy to do. I'm happy to be wrong. I so, take great pride in my wrongness. Yeah, so that's mine. If Rafa, and this, this is a conditional bowl prediction, but if Rafa loses Monte Carlo, he will not play Paris. Heard it here first, folks. Next question comes from Jess MCC, who asks, are there any 
parent-kid coaching pairs that actually ended well. Absolutely there are. Such as? I think Yuri and Maria worked well. Okay. Uh, Yuri and Maria Sharapova. I think that it, like, you know, like, once she won the Aussie, he was kind of done, and she's just, like, they have a good relationship, and he's, like, out of the picture, and... And he scaled kind of, back happily. Yeah. From what we can tell. You know, happily. Like, just handed her over to whatever coach she wants. And so I think that's a that's a legitimately good one. Um, I think Richard Williams has worked out well for... Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, that one definitely was... I mean, people sort of forget at this stage in the Williams' careers what a lightning rod he was in the early part of their career. But exactly. he really did... There was a lot of commotion for lack of a more you know descriptive term that was largely stoked by him and comments he made about the girls yeah uh, and and but now he seems to have really settled down and he, the girls have always you know had his back and vice versa yeah i mean i i think that one thing that people do need to realize as much as we hear you know all these horror stories about about parents and and you know like tennis play, tennis parents and their kids is that like I know for myself, like having, again, being around the WTA a little bit more than the ATP and obviously ATP, you have less, so, you know, kind of like moms or dads, like with their kids, right? Like Tomic is, is probably like the highest profile. I mean, I, if you read, I don't know, like if people want to say Judy Murray and Andy Murray, uh, which I think is always a bit overblown. The Djokovic's at times are around a lot. The Djokovic's. You know, like all the way down to like Dennis Istaman and his mom. Like that's one thing. But with the women, I will say this is that being around the tour, the juniors and the WTA. If I were like an outside observer, I am an outside observer. Mm-hmm. I would rather see a militant parent around the WTA than I would around the ATP. And that's not to say that I would. I mean that's not crossing the line to like whatever, like Jim Pierce and like, you know, Demir Dockich style. Right. But if you guys saw like what these women or these, they're not even women at the time, like these young girls from 14 to 18 have to deal with, whether it be from coaches being inappropriate to agents, to fans, like, you know what? I'm a okay with like, a kid having their mom like right there to be like, no, 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 no. Like this is inappropriate. And I think that it is quite significantly underplayed what these, what these young girls have to deal with as they're coming up because they're seen as cash cows by agents and parents and parents, but, but by agents, I mean, parents are parents and obviously parents can abuse their, their kind of trust. And and we've seen that many times over. Sure. But I would, st- I'm still okay with like the Peters and the Draganas and the, you know, I don't know, Kathy Robson's and the, the, you know, Heather Watson's mom, like being right there. At, at, certain, sure. at a certain point, it's a huger scale thing of, you know, if you're a parent who lets, you know, your daughter go to some out of town concert or something with her friends, except for now she's on the opposite side of the world, surrounded by you know, strange men, put it bluntly. Because right. so many of the tennis people who are wants men. something from her. Yeah, who wants something from her. And she's under pressure to perform and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention, you know, this whole stable full of ATP players. Right. And not that they're, you know, predatory by any 
stretch for the most part, as far as I know. Anyway, yeah, it's just a lot to deal with. And so you do understand why uh, why that needs to happen. And you, But you do also know that there is a time to, you know, let the bird fly out of the nest eventually. Absolutely. I mean, I you mean, don't I... need to be a... Donald Young's parents get a lot of criticism for being with him every step of the way. And that's probably justified criticism. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, you know, it, it's just... I, I think that, generally speaking... It's just a bit of an under kind of appreciated aspect. I don't mean appreciated in a good way. I think that it's an under realized aspect of, and again, I'll say this with the women, that aspect of the game, that these are kids who are vulnerable. Like these are not kids who went to, you know, a regular high school and went to college. Like no, what They're I not always the most street smart people tennis player they, they don't know you know i mean they've been they've been socialized in very like weird ways they've been homeschooled but homeschooled means something different in every culture you know so in a lot of situations that means just being yanked out of school to travel the world like whenever i see like tennis players who are playing tournaments all throughout the year who are like 13 14 15 i get really nervous about that because it's like you know these kids aren't 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 really normal the way that we would we would expect a 13 14 15 year old to be in a lot of ways their development and their maturity has has been stunted by this thing where they have to walk out on the court they have their coach and what they're trying to do is aside from winning the match like please their coach yeah or agent they want dinner to be like pleasant ever. that night right you know, it's very it's very personal for them they it don't, they don't and, get to, you know, walk off court and leave the result behind. Right. And, and even this week, there was a report out of the Orange Bowl, which is one of the most prestigious junior tournaments in the world in Florida, of a junior losing a match and the cops being called, like the, the Florida cops being called to the tournament because, like, her opponent who won the match, like, turned around and saw that, like, she was bleeding from the head and her father was walking away with like a tennis racket. Yeah. Like these are the realities that exist for these juniors. And, you know, so as much as like we want to make it entertainment and we want to make it funny and, you know, just kind of be like, Oh, look at this like weirdo and like whatever. And, and even, and, and that sort of like lifestyle or that sort of uh, perspective on life carries through to when like your late teens to early twenties to mid twenties. And, you know, it never really changes. There's always going to be those insecurities and that that desire because it's been built in you from when you were young to please men. Yeah. And problem parents are problem parents. And when we talk about problem parents, we're talking about like abusive parents. And yeah. that's not okay. But when you see like a junior and you have a parent who's devoted who will travel with them, I'm I'm so I'm so in favor of that like it's not even funny. I was most struck by it, actually, when I went to, I guess it's the only challenge I've ever been to, which was at the Bronx a couple years ago, which was a which women's challenger, and it was all younger players, mostly who are at this challenger, players who are, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, like Julia Gerges was there way before she was big, Kvitova was there, Rogowska, and all these players who, you know, way on the younger side of things, and all who was there with them was these, you know, coaches, these, like, male coaches, like, in their 50s. Just like hanging around these 19 year old girls. And that was sort of the dynamic of what tennis is. 
for level. And just sociologically, it was it was odd. And I, I don't like being cynical. No. Even though I am a cynical person. But I don't like, you know, but if any of you ever go to, a, particularly if you go to a slam and you go to and you go to a match involving a junior a junior talent stand there like don't sit in the seats but like stand off to the side and you will you will see the the the, the flurry of like 3 to 5 agents who are all men because that's just how the the industry goes who are standing courtside with their arms crossed like kind of like chuckling to themselves and chuckling to each other as they watch like players play and and just kind of like think about what that means. Like, you know what I mean? Like think about kind of how that translates to these kids who just don't know any better. And I don't blame the kids, but because, yeah, they just they just don't know any better. And it's it's disturbing on many different levels. And especially if you go to a junior tournament, obviously. But it's, you know, that's why, like, I'm always like really in favor of like moms traveling with their daughters. Yeah. don't have a problem with it in any way shape or form or even you know even dads you know like we can we can make fun of the dads as much as we want about how kind of strict they are with their kids but think about what it means if like their kids were like not with their dad mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a scary place and i've heard that from juniors i've heard that from seniors about who recount their experiences as juniors about being taken advantage of, of by agents by other atp players by you know coaches and it becomes a very real thing so this is just me on my soapbox just kind of being like you know understand like where these kids are coming from like they're not normal they're not no and and the parents need and the parents know them better than anybody and obviously there are the the bad bad news is more interesting news than good news i mean nobody talks about you know ann davenport or anything right it was a mo- or or seen williams but right. you know who's these model calm influences in their children's lives as far as we all know and just been there being nothing but supportive and protective and all the right background ways right so that's I mean, that. that's right no nobody talks about that but uh i mean i i, I tip my cap i mean because my younger sister was a rhythmic gymnast for a really long time and you know went to junior olympics and was an elite gymnast a lot and my mom like quit her job to like travel with my sister and you know, so much of like kind of rhythmic gymnastics is unfortunately about aesthetics and is about diet yeah. and it's about being thin and, and what it takes to be that. And this wasn't a kid who was like 20. Like This was a kid who was like 14, 15, 16, my sister. And to have my mom just be there and not tell her that like those things were not okay. Like my sister would never bring those things up to my mom, but at least to have that grounding figure who like reminded you of like who you were and and what were your values and what was important in life like you know all those sorts of things like that was major and so yeah cut the kids and their moms and their dads a bit of slack if it gets like inappropriate and stupid and abusive and all sorts of things and that's when like you know people will pay attention and you know draw yeah draw attention to it to where hopefully the attention makes it stop but for the most part and hopefully serves to other parents an example of you know what lines not to cross exactly another question comes from rob shu who says hey ben hey courtney i'm thinking of going to attorney in addition to cincy any recommendations and i should say that rob shu is actually the only person i saw him at cincy 
he's the only person to ever like come to me like when I was in the stands and be like, "You're Ben Rothenberg," which was sort of confusing because it doesn't happen much to me. That was a bit of a humble brag. I'm gonna call you out on it that. It was not that humble. Let's be clear. <laughs> so Courtney is someone who lives in the Midwest and likes Cincy, which is a pretty great tournament as we've discussed for fans. We love, we love Cincy. Where would you go next? If you're in the Midwest, I would say that if you like the WTA, then to go to Charleston. Mm-hmm. I think that would be my recommendation. Just because I know that, like, I mean, even for me, you know, the U.S. Open is just a bit of a a difficult tournament to get to. It's, it's expensive to it's stay a, in New York. It's a production. If you want to go there, oh, it's, it's not yeah. lucky. And it's, it's expensive. I mean, it's Manhattan. You're staying in there, you know. 200 bucks a night when you're not even, where you're literally just there to, like, sleep. That's that's brutal. So if you want to see just the women, go to Charleston. But otherwise, I would say just like try to go to any joint tournament. I mean, I feel like that's like the most bang for your buck. So to me, honestly, like Indian Wells is uh, between Indian Wells and Miami. I would say Indian Wells just because it's beautiful, it's peaceful. Uh, unless you're a huge Williams fan, you get everything that you want from India Wells. And now you get Federer and you don't get that at Miami anymore. Exactly. Exactly. So, and then on top of that with India Wells, like you don't have to actually stay in India Wells or Indio or any of the like immediately surrounding cities. Like you can actually get like really reasonable hotel and car rates, like, you know, two or three cities over, you know, like that's maybe like a 30, 30 minute drive yeah. uh, to the site. So that's pretty good. But it, it's, uh, you know, the BMP Paribas Open, I, I love it. It's the tournament that made me really genuinely fall in love with tennis. So so I would say Indian Wells. But but if that's not feasible and you have friends in Miami, do Miami. But do a joint tournament because, like, the joints, it's uh, it gives you everything that you want. Agreed. Um, I, I'll put a quick plug in for Washington. Which is joint recent? <laughs> which is joint recently? It's a 500. I don't know what you're laughing. It's comparable to Charleston in terms of size, and it is a very well-run tournament uh, as a great ATP sort of you know long-standing event for that. And if you like American players, it's a good place to go see all of them uh, in their dwindling numbers, but they're still there. But so Ben, like internationally, what would you say? Well, that's what I was going to say next. I was going to say if you have you know if you have the options and the means to do it, the one that I would recommend. The two places I would recommend going on sort of pilgrimages are Indian Wells and Wimbledon. I think if you can get yourself to Wimbledon, do it. Because it really is when you're there, it's like, you feel like you're in, you know, Mecca for tennis. It's it's, it's, it's sort of why tennis is what it is. Wimbledon is all of that. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with the Wimbledon pick. I mean, I think that to the extent that it's it's a bit more of a cost issue, I have to think that... Rome is actually a bit cheaper, um, and especially if you like clay tennis. But um, Rome, you can kind of like find like cheap places to stay. You can take public transport to the Foro Italico. The flight might uh, is obviously going to be more than it is to London, but the weather is great. Whereas like with Wimbledon, it's a bit of a crapshoot. So yeah, so that that's what I would say is that if you can get yourself to to Rome, I said this last week. It's it's just a it's just a beautiful tournament. It's 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 what you think clay tennis is supposed to look like. Yeah, is in Rome, not in not in Paris. Like I've been to the French Open and I was sorely disappointed. And to be fair. Many people have told me that I'm full of crap. Like, many people have told me that, like, the French Open is, like, the epitome. But to me, personally, like, if you love, like, clay court tennis and you want to see everybody 
and you don't have a gazillion dollars to spend, you know, 40 bucks for steak frites just to like be <laughs> not hungry at night, go to Rome because you can go to Rome. You can, the tickets are cheaper. You get to see everybody because it's mandatory for on both sides. You can get cheaper accommodation and on top of all that, like you can actually be in Rome and it's cheaper. Like you can buy yourself like a really lovely plate of pasta for like 15 bucks and it's better than any plate of pasta you've ever had in the States, I guarantee you. Just because of what the deals they were running this fall randomly, and I don't know if this will keep happening, financially, actually one of the cheaper trips I took this year was to Istanbul. Oh yeah, totally, right? Istanbul was not very expensive. The round trip flight I had was around a little over $700 from the from U.S. DC. From D.C. to Istanbul. And I think they had them from Chicago, too, if you're a Midwesterner. Yeah. So Mine was that a little was, bit more uh, than that, but yeah, it's less than a grand. Yeah, and the sure. and the tickets, and that's from the West Coast. And yeah. so the tickets there were not very expensive either. Istanbul's only going to happen one more year, but if you're an American looking for a... And it's cheap to be in Istanbul. And you get to see every all the top eight, you know. Yeah, Istanbul's not an expensive place to be either, so... Because that's the only thing about London. Like, I would recommend, like, Wimbledon, and I would recommend, like, the World Tour Finals. Yeah, or Wimbledon isn't cheap. Even Queens, but, like... No, Queens is really expensive for what it is. I would actually not dude, recommend Queens. I know. No, totally. But, like, I... To be in London is just expensive. Like, even just to ride the tube is not cheap. No. To ride the tube is, like... It's, like, a pound 80 to three pounds one way, which is, like... You multiply everything by two. That's just to, for for me being safe in London. So it's like four bucks to like six bucks to just get one way and then that's, back. That's not okay. It's not cheap. You know, it's not it's not cheap. Like I would rather go to Eastbourne, which is a joint tournament where a lot of top players play more on the WTA side than the than the ATP. But it's cheaper there. You can stay in a B and B for like you know thirty five pound, which is about seventy bucks. Food's cheap. You can walk to the site. Walk to the English Channel and walk along the shore. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I, I, I love East, I love Eastbourne. I really, really do. And I would love to like recommend any of the Aussie tournaments, but the flight to Aussie is like, so expensive. It's prohibitive. It it prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah. Same with Asia. We've never, we've never been to any Asian tournaments either. We haven't been to Asian tournaments, but like as Ben and I both know, Aussie is just it's it's a it's it's brutal. It is. It's compared Aussie to compared to I can throw some numbers out there comparing to. From Washington, anyway, comparing to Istanbul, which costs about 700 round trip, Melbourne is about 2,400. Yeah, which is more than three times that. West Coast, if you were to book right now, it's it's a little less than 2,000, about like 1,950, but that would require you to be on a plane or not a plane, but it's about a 40 hour trip to Melbourne because you have to like fly through. For me, it's like San Francisco to LAX with a bit of a layover from LAX to Guangzhou, <laughs> and about a four hour layover in Guangzhou. And then a flight from Guangzhou to Melbourne. And, you know, as much as I love the Aussie Open, it's like, it's, I mean, just pure experience wise, I love the Aussie, but that's brutal. That's a lot. It's a lot. I have a, I'm flying through Dubai this time instead of going the LA route. So we'll see how that goes. I might run into Roger Federer's, you know, mansion there. That probably is not how it works. I don't think you run into buildings, but. I don't think you do. Not really. Uh, I got this one question from Zachary Hertz, who is either inquisitive about the state of Tamir Pashik's game or is just a really big Pashik fan. Which there are a lot of. Which there are a lot of. I I count myself as one of them. I I like watching her play when she plays really well. But his question is, Tamir Pashik, buy, sell, hold, and why? And then secondly, 
Why has she been so inconsistent? Do you think she's dangerous? She's a dangerous floater everywhere or just a grass court specialist? Ben? I am going to say bye because I think that the price is relatively low because I think she's completely off the radar. I mean, I can't remember the last time we talked about her on here. It would have been at Wimbledon. Yeah, and she made the quarterfinals there and she's played great tennis, really great tennis on grass. She won Eastbourne. She played a great match against Wozniacki at Wimbledon. Gave Azarenka a pretty good fight in the fourth round. Uh, or no, sorry, in the quarterfinals. And uh, yeah, I think that she can absolutely do that on hard courts as well. I mean, she one of her early breakout tournaments was at the U.S. Open when she was like 16 years old. And uh, she's also very young. She's had some injury problems that you've got to be wary of, I guess, if you're talking about stocks. But I think that, yeah, I, I like I like her game a lot. I think there is upside there. She's a very clean hitter. She played Serena in the first round of the Australian Open, actually, last year. So she'll probably, if she gets a better draw than that, which you can't really get a worse draw in this day and age, that her ranking will probably bump up a little bit from that. So I will buy. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's hasn't been a long set of data from her recently to really get a good sense of what her potential can be on all surfaces. But on grass, definitely. Worth it for that alone. For sure. But um, I, I think she's a buy. I mean, I've always really, I've always really bought into Pashik's game. I, I think that on, on a slow, hard court, again, like at the Aussie Open or Indian Wells, like she can do damage. It's just a matter of her kind of believing that she can. Mm-hmm. Her fitness and her movement will always be an issue. But, you know, I mean, yeah, that match against Wozniacki was a great match from Wimbledon, one of the best matches from that tournament from the WTA side. One of the best matches and, of the year, arguably. Yeah, for sure. And and what I like about Pashek is kind of her kind of nonchalance about it. Obviously, that affects her kind of long-term progress, right? Like, if you, you, if you aren't all in at every single match, like... It, it can be a bit problematic, but she's a fighter though. She plays some law and it's sort of an Isner sense without the well, serve. She saved match points and came back from like, what, like two breaks down against like Kerber. Yeah, she, maybe, she plays these long, Eastport? long, long matches when she, the one year that the WTA tournament in Washington was in college park, she played back to back matches of like over three hours, which you don't get a lot. The WTA, she went 12, 10 in the first round against Yankovic, the Australian open in 08. Which was a crazy match. If anyone remembers highlights of that, she saved. Yankovic <laughs> saved like two match points, and that was nuts. She beat Schiavone a couple years ago at Wimbledon in like 13 11 in the third. I mean, yeah, she, I mean just, she, she, she brings a lot of uh, drama. If you're, if you're buying on entertainment value, you should definitely buy Pashik stock. I'll say that. And she's just, she's just such a clean hitter and, and good and solid. I think that, like, I don't necessarily believe that she kind of gives up against the the top people. No. That I think that she she kind of sees it as a legitimate challenge and wants to see kind of where her game kind of uh, matches up against them, which is great. So, you know, she's not going to be your small tournament player. But, and I, you know, her run to Eastbourne broke her way just because everybody fell away. In like the first or second round, like Kvitova, Wozniacki, like I was there. Like it was like constantly, like in the first few days, I was like, oh, I'm interviewing somebody in the top ten who just lost. But uh, but she's just kind of a free hitter. And at the end of the day, if you've listened to like kind of this podcast over the course of time, I think it becomes pretty evident that you know I'm gonna back the big hitter over the defensive 
kind of consistent person at a big tournament every single time. Although, Pashik has little or no serve. Yeah, her serve is really crap. It's not good. No, so that, not. That's a big... I mean, just getting that to... If right now, by elite WTA standards, that's like a 2 out of 10 for her. Getting that up getting it up to a 5 could solve all I totally agree issues. with you. I mean, she should, even with that crap serve, be a consistent top 20 player. Yeah. To Agreed. me. So. Agreed. Next one is a doubles question from M. Schoolman, who asks, could the doubles tour capitalize on more high-profile fans such as entertainer Carrot Top to aid in publicity and awareness? Putting the Carrot Top, I, I'm not exactly sure what Carrot Top does. Does he play tennis? Um, he's a doubles fan, but he's 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 no. I've never seen him. <laughs> I've never seen him at a tournament. Is yeah, he there? I've seen him. Okay, yeah. I feel like he'd be hard to miss. Anyway, what do you think? We talked about this a little bit before, but can doubles do gimmicky stuff? Get bigger? Does it need to? I think it needs to do something. It needs to do something. I mean, I think that you know this came up in Istanbul. I know that you were there, Ben, uh, when we were talking about uh, to Lisa and Liesel a little bit about this idea that the Bryan brothers obviously are kind of like the thing. A brand, in, yeah. A brand. And, and, you know, how much, I mean, obviously a lot of that has to do with how successful they've been as tennis players. But a lot of it does have to do as well with kind of just the gimmick of twins. You know, they're the Bryans, they chest bump. And they've, know, and they've worked hard on their brand they, too. They put yeah, in exactly. an incredible amount of, effort in terms of you know doing all sorts of publicity stuff going to autograph signings and doing commercials and stuff they do you know double min ads or something like that or, right you know all right. this stuff yeah. they uh, and no other doubles team has done that yeah so i i don't think that it's an issue of like an external third party like red foo type person that's associated with doubles yeah to me I mean, obviously the Bryans really carry men's doubles, but outside of them, like when we take it to the WTA side, you know, WTA just, just just doesn't have that. Like teams break up all the time. Like even this year, like, you know, like Huber Raymond are going to split up and play with other people. Uh, Same with Karolinka Petrova. Karolinka Petrova as well. And the only like kind of constants from 2012 to 2013 will be Lovachkova, and Radechka and Ronnie Vinci, who are obviously number one. And the Williamses. And, and the Williamses, to the extent that that matters outside of the slams. But, um, and that, that hurts the game. You know, it hurts the ability to count on something that is meaningful. Because nobody, as as fans, as sports fans, like, if you think about it, like, outside of, like, tennis, nobody wants to, like, like go all in on a team that's going to crash out in the first round. Yeah. But yeah, like nobody's going to like, you know, really go all in on a team that like doesn't, isn't going to exist. I mean, that that's just human nature. Like, why would I love a team and commit to a team or really follow a team? That's why the Miami Marlins have no fans. There you go. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the biggest thing. And I think that you and I, I think that you maybe had asked uh, Liesl and Lisa, like, you know, like, uh, you can correct me, but like, you know, what would it take to kind of elevate the women's doubles game to where the men's doubles game is, where the Bryans kind of occupy? And I'm not really sure that either of them had a clear no, answer. No, they didn't really have an I mean, it's, it's tough to know. And uh, I think that the teams that have sort of captured public imagination beyond the really, really hardcore doubles you know, fans have been the Bryans and the Indo-Pac. 
mm. in recent years. And that's and there was a big backstrip in a pack. It, it does take a lot for doubles. I mean, doubles, as low as tennis is on the sort of sports ladder of the world, or of America, let's put it that way, and the world to a lesser extent, doubles is, as a separate sport, which it kind of is, mm-hmm. way below that even. Absolutely. So you, it really will take a lot. And I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but... I think there's always going to be a place for it, or hopefully there will always be a place for it as uh, as a niche alongside this other sport. And it's a unique thing that tennis has. I mean, no other sports do you get to see people doing two different events. I mean, no one, you can't go watch, you know, LeBron James play three-on-three somewhere. Right. It doesn't happen. So, yeah, so it's a cool thing. And so, wish doubles the best. But I don't think Karatop is the answer, because I don't think prop comedy is the way the, the route ATP needs to go. I would agree with that. Yeah. Another question comes from Jacqueline0812, who asks us, if you weren't a tennis journalist, what other sport or sports would you like to cover? Hashtag off-season question. <laughs> Courtney, what other sport or sports would you like to cover? Um, For me, I'd have to say baseball. Okay. Baseball is kind of my second love. I mean, I love, I love American football as well. I love, like, you know, like soccer, what everybody else in the world calls football as well. You know, there's there's the one thing about soccer is that there's kind of it matches tennis in kind of its daily kind of soap opera ness. Yeah. You know, like you know, like a quotes from a manager versus like quotes from a player and like tension, and you have all these different leagues, and so it's it's quite a sprawl. But I actually find that a bit overwhelming. Like I've always just really been like a English Premiership fan or a Bundesliga fan, and that was it. Like I've really never paid attention to, to to La Liga at all. And yet La Liga is kind of like the shit now. So I'm just kind of like, okay, whatever. But for me, it's baseball. I mean, before tennis, it was baseball. I, I'm a sabermetrics kid. I love numbers. I love crunching numbers. I love looking at players as values as opposed to kind of the intangible things that they add to a team. How many times have you watched Moneyball? <laughs> That's embarrassing. I probably watch well, okay. I probably watch Moneyball like six or seven times. Okay. But I've read Moneyball probably like six or seven times, which it being a book is a bit more of a, a bigger endeavor. And before I was a tennis journalist, I was an attorney, and a lot of the time that I spent as an attorney for about three or four years was in a conference room kind of reading documents. And two of my what have now become like two of my really good friends were also in that room. And we would literally just sit there and just talk baseball. You know, we'd have fantasy teams and all that sort of stuff. But I I don't play that anymore because I don't really have the time. But I just love baseball for its nuance. I love it for its not simplicity, but but there is a simplicity to it. You know, I, and, and you mentioned Moneyball. I mean, I am from the East Bay. I am an Oakland kid. I'm an Oaklandese fan before Moneyball ever came out. And so to kind of really fall in love with a team again, because like you really felt that you just were smarter than everybody else. I mean, there's, there's kind of a nerdiness to it. But yeah, I'd probably, I, I think I'd probably write about baseball um, because I, I don't like basketball, NBA basketball. I went to schools that didn't have college teams. So mm-hmm. I don't really get college football or college basketball or anything like that. 
So baseball was really my professional entree. I mean, I would probably, I mean, hockey was great, but I, I probably couldn't write about hockey, but even though I love it as much as, as baseball, but I'd probably say baseball. My pick would be hockey, which probably was Shocker. Which, you write about hockey, though. It's like a total, like, It's out. sort of a cop-out for this question, because yeah. I do do another sport, although not much lately, because the NHL is still locked out. So my plan sort of for the year was do tennis stuff, and then the gaps in the tennis season, the big gaps sort of line up nicely with big times in hockey. But in case you guys don't know, Ben was a hockey goalie. I was. Yes, I played. I started when I was seven playing hockey and became a goalie when I was eight and played until I was, I guess, 18, like a senior in uh, high school. So, right. yeah, I played a lot of goalie. I got scored on a whole lot. I was okay. <laughs> I wasn't, I mean, I was, you know, like a, probably like a 70th percentile goalie in the world. Fair. Not gonna, not gonna. You were no Dominic Hasek, but what no, can you do? I was no Dominic Hasek. I did have similar lack of technique. I'll say that. Well, so who is your favorite hockey goalie, like of all time? My favorite hockey goalie of all time is Ron Hextall. Okay, that's who was fair. who was? I'm a Philadelphia Flyers fan, so mm-hmm. and he was a hockey goalie who was like wildly erratic, and you know occasionally violent, which just not I don't think reflect how I played. For hockey. me, it was Hasek for the for the erratic. Yeah. side of it and just kind of like a like no holds barred however i can stop this puck for getting into the goal i will do it yeah. like technique be damned i loved hashik pretty much yeah hexal was more of like a sort of like a rock star goalie in terms of just being like sort of like the star of the team in a way hashik wasn't right. exactly hashik was just sort of this like crazy guy they kept back in by the net and, you know no one really go talk to him or anything right but, uh, hexal had a lot more sort of stage presence i guess although the flyers have had so many goalies they get one, like a new one every single year. So it's not their strength. But yeah, so hockey would be it. I like writing about tennis, though, in terms of actual, you know, main thing. Just because I like writing about the individual parts of it. Team sports, I find sort of harder to write about in what I feel is a more honestly accurate way. No, but expand on that because, like, we've talked about this before. Like, about how... Because I think we both agree that it would be, it'd be much... Not that we're spoiled, but that there's a different skill set to writing about an individual sport. Yeah, I think tennis... As it is writing about about a team sport. So explain that. Yeah, I think tennis is just a really nice sport to write about just because of that. Because, exactly, because when you watch a tennis match, somebody won and somebody lost. And because they're individuals, you know, player A won because they were the better player. And player B lost because they were not the better player. And it really, there's luck involved and stuff, but it really is that simple and that black and white when you come right down to it. A big team sport like, let's say, football or something, I mean, there are so many different moving parts in football. Either, even, whichever definition of that you want, American or soccer. I mean, you can't just pin it on one person. Right. Even if that person scores, like, three goals or, you know, catches three touchdowns, there was a lot more at work in that game than that one person. And, yeah, that's... Pretty much what I think about that. So I don't have a lot of ex- as much experience writing about team sports as I do with tennis, obviously. But when I have, and I do, you know, do it a lot, and it's not impossible for me. But I feel like sometimes the things you can say in, in articles about individuals are sort of more unassailable. Well, I mean, I think that when you deal with an individual sport, and and again, what exactly what you're saying is exactly how I feel about tennis. You know, like I've I've had conversations with people who are like, "Oh, you write about tennis?" I'm like, "Yeah." Like, oh, did you play? I'm like, nah. I mean, I've I've played, 
the game, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't play in high school. I didn't play in college. I played other sports. You know, I played completely different team sports in those years. I played, you know, soccer, volleyball, and, and uh, softball when I was in high school and, and a bit in college. I never really played tennis. So the X's and O's of the sport, admittedly, they escape me. I, I'm, I'm learning. You know, I get it. I mean, I think that if you get, if you have some sort of like athletic IQ, that translates. It definitely does. Sport. You know, like you get what somebody's trying to do and you may not understand like the like granular technique of what they're trying to do, but like you get what they're trying to do. Like he's trying to go forehand because it'll leave it short and then he'll like finish it all, you know, like whatever. And but what I have always what I always tell people is that like what I really love about writing about tennis is the psychology of it. Yeah. Which you can't really write about when you write about team sports, because you could be obsessed with like even a quarterback or a pitcher or a hitter, or like whoever's like psychology, but that doesn't really have any resonance when they're on the pitch with like ten other people or eight other people. You know, like you know, you can't say that like X player really you know caused the match to go or the game to go one way or the other because of his play. Like you don't really know that. Like you're speculating. So there's a bit more of like. Even though, admittedly, with tennis, like, we're all speculating. But there, it's easier to come to a sense of, like, peace and truth within tennis than I feel like there can be with, like, sports that are not else otherwise individual. I mean, the only analog is golf because that's also a very mental sport. But I just, I love the psychology of the game. I love kind of just, like, putting myself in Benoit Paris shoes and being like, yep, <laughs> I would totally react that way. Like, if I were him... I would absolutely like, you know, lose my head and do stupid things and and make horrible shot selections. And in that way, there's like a core kind of humanity to what to what they do, which is like it's pure, it's primal and you can identify it. And even with golf, I think golf is I think golf is another good sport to write about for sure. And it has a little bit of that baseball sort of poeticness you're talking about. Sure. And maybe more so than tennis, more so than tennis, I think for sure. And I mean, if you go ever go to like a bookstore or like a library in the sports section, there will always be so much about golf. Right. Sports writers clearly like golf as a people, at least mm-hmm. American sports writers. Yeah, but probably because a lot of them play golf. Honestly, it's a sport you can play, being you know middle aged. Well, but a lot of it has to do with like the aspiration. I, I always feel this way when I talk about tennis, and especially when I talk about Federer. Mm-hmm. Is that from a writer's standpoint, from a fan standpoint, there is this, like, desire to, like, be that person. Like, I want to be Roger. I want to be that guy who, like, sips champagne <laughs> and then, like, hits the ball in this, like, absurdly balletic fashion. And, like, everyone reveres me. And Bagels it's, people without breaking a sweat. Right. You know, like, you know, I flick my hair and everybody, like, oohs and ahs. Like, I don't mean that in, like, a bad way. Like, I think that a lot of fans, like, really attach to that. And you don't get that in baseball and you don't get that in football. Like you, I don't think that people look at baseball players or or football players or even soccer players or hockey players, NASCAR, who look at them and be like, oh yeah, I want to be that dude. But you get that with tennis and you get that with golf. You definitely get it with golf. Yeah. And they're individual sports. You really do feel like you get to sort of see the person. And I think there's more of that in tennis. I think tennis is a more sort of condensed display of character i guess because it's head to head golf is sort of you know people wander off essentially on their own right and race against the course but not really each other directly i mean yeah. you can talk about oh there's such a big rivalry between 
Tiger and Rory McIlroy now. Really? Is there? Have they ever, like, you know, stood on the thing at the same time and gone at it? No. Rory can't screw up what Tiger wants to do. Tiger can't screw up what Rory wants to do. But Rafa can screw up what Roger wants to do. Absolutely. You that's, know what I mean? When people, people I have a bunch of friends who are bigger golf fans than tennis fans. And they've had debates, you know, which is harder to win, you know, a Grand Slam or a, a major in golf or in tennis. And I think it's tennis. Obviously, I'm a little biased, but because you can have opponents who can pinpoint your weaknesses and exploit them. Exactly. And you do not have that in golf. In golf, you really, there's some wind and some elements stuff, and you don't, you can't stop other people, but you also ultimately control your own destiny. And in tennis, you absolutely do not. Totally agree. So. Not that we're biased or anything. But not that I we're totally biased agree. at all. Uh, so this will be the little part as we close out this show where we pick something to talk about. Uh, last week, we talked about jun- I talked about Junior Eurovision, which hopefully was educational for you all. Ukraine won this weekend. We tweeted the uh, an Atlantic article at Junior Eurovision, which you can all check out on our Twitter. But I wanted to talk this week very briefly about someone moving up in the tennis world who is a friend of ours from your, your outlet, uh, John Wertheim at Sports Illustrated, who was oh. recently named the... Uh, executive editor of Sports Illustrated. It's a big jump. So it's number two. Congratulations to him on that. And he really was really the pioneer in sort of our industry in terms of our industry being people who write about tennis primarily online. Because he, as early as, you know, 98, 99, really relatively early days of internet content being a thing. He was there weekly providing the mailbags and occasionally other various rotating Monday features and giving a voice in a mailbox literally for tennis fans things and a must read thing every week. So I'm not, I don't think the mailbag is ending necessarily with him. It's not, it's not. Yeah. As of, as of now anyway, with him taking this higher position, but you know, just taking this, it's good to see his work and diligence and over time rewarded in this fashion. So just a tip of the cap for him here. I'll say. Yeah. Courtney, how about you? I mean, slightly related is, you know, obviously I came from a background of blogging, you know, and and, uh, kind of one of the kind of key aspects of being a blogger is that like you didn't have access, like you you had that freedom to say whatever you want to say about a player, about a, a fellow journalist, not fellow, but a journalist all sorts of things like you had the freedom to say that because you didn't have to face anybody. You, you didn't have to look at that player in the eye, you know, the next week you didn't have to like sit in a press room with that journalist that week. And, and it was freeing. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like I loved it. I, I loved that aspect of it. But the flip side of it is, you know, I mean, I think that there is this kind of mentality of kind of an us against them with respect to, bloggers and tennis quote-unquote mainstream tennis journalists and I think that I don't need to name people by names like I think that everybody kind of knows who these people are who you know kind of as tennis bloggers as tennis writers and and to be frank I still consider myself as a a tennis blogger Uh, obviously I have a little bit more access these days but at the same time like I am very kind of mindful of this idea of I want to have the freedom to be able to say what I want to say and um you know, ever since I was like picked up by by Sports Illustrated and and they've been tremendously helpful in kind of my development as a writer and they've been very open minded to my ideas about like what I wanted to write, you know, having that access, kind of half access, I suppose, 
has definitely like opened me up to kind of like being in this weird, at least I feel like this weird middle area where like bloggers like really like resonate with me. But at the same time, like I really respect what the journalists do because I don't do that. Like I don't bend over backwards. I mean, Ben, like you're a journalist, like I'm a blogger, like there's a difference. And so when Ben breaks a story, like he did this week with Isner uh, splitting ways with, with Craig Boynton and hiring a new coach. I was like, that's awesome. Like I'm going to pimp this. I'm going to like put on the site, like everything. It's great where I'm ranting or where I'm ranting from. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this place of like, everyone needs to kind of respect that and understand that we're going to have disagreements. Like people are going to read the crap that I write and they're going to, disagree vehemently and i know that there are people who are especially on twitter who disagree with me vehemently and they won't say it because they're like oh well courtney follows me so i don't want to like hurt her feelings you're not hurting my feelings say what you want to say like at the end of the day like i really respect people who have like strong opinion who have the fact to back it up like opinion without fact is a bit useless but, like, you have your facts, you disagree, totally cool. Like, we're all entitled to have, like, disagreements on, like, certain situations or certain matches or certain shots or whatever it is over the course of the year. But don't, like, feel, like, I guess for me, like, the thing that I would love for people to understand is, that, like, just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean they're a crappy person. No, not at all. And... Like, I feel like, and Ben, you know this, like, obviously, we know a lot of the people who are in the industry, we know a lot of the people who write a lot of things that, like, a lot of people disagree with, and, and I see people's comments about them, and they're not, the comments are not confined to the opinion. Like, I disagree with this person's opinion because they're wrong on XYZ level, and here's the reason why I disagree with it. They disagree with it, and then they go so, like, a, a step further, and they say, like, that that guy or that girl is totally full of crap and doesn't know a thing about tennis and doesn't know anything and their opinion should be disregarded because they're a horrible human being. And they're a poopy head, essentially. And they're a poopy head. And that's where I, I really kind of blanch a little bit. And obviously, as a former blogger, as a current blogger, but, like, as a former independent blogger that was not attached to, like, a mainstream outlet, I totally understand where that person is coming from. But... What I will want, what I would want to say to that person is, like, take a step back, respect that, like, this person has access that you don't have. Maybe they know things that you don't know. Like, you know, maybe they know truths. Maybe these players are telling them things that you don't know. Like, you're totally speculating, you know, and just respect that, like, that's what they're saying. And you can disagree, and that's fine. You can disagree vehemently, but they're not bad people. No, and I think people, to that note, I think people maybe out of the industry don't understand a lot of the influence of talking on background about things to people, mm. which basically is people talking not to be quoted, but to just right. sort of tell you to, you know, so you learn things about situations Absolutely. and people who, and talking about, you know, John Wertheim, for example, mentioned earlier, the, the mailbag, a lot of what he did that was so good. It's, it was a lot of informed opinions about things that he gathered by, you know, you see him at tournaments, or you, if you do see him at tournaments, he's talking to, like, everybody. Right. And people, and, you know, he, so he hears things or gets senses of where the tides of things that are going. And that's what you valued. Yeah. 
I mean, that's why John mattered. It, I mean, obviously he's a great writer, but also you kind of like trusted that the opinions that he was he was putting out were based not just his, but like were based on conversations that he had with higher ups, lowers, like whatever it was, so that you got closer to the truth. Which is what allowed him to make so many relatively you know, he was opinionated in a lot of in a lot of what he writes, and more so than most writers who are in sort of his uh vein of things. And but those were all opinions that he I think for the most part was able to, you know, point to things and do. And not always necessarily with all the gears with the mechanisms visible. Right. But But yeah, but that's that's all I would wanna say is that like I totally get it, and there are times where, like, I want to – I've talked to you about this before, Ben. Like, times where I've wanted to defend certain writers or, or kind of say, like, well, you can disagree. Like, I disagree with – I mean, I disagree with writers all the time. Like, you know, like, our tennis writing world is very, very small. Mm-hmm. Very small. Like, when you compare it to, like, what is baseball or football or, you know, any of the other mainstream American sports, like, we are tiny. How many people do you think there are in the U.S. who listed their occupation detail-wise would say, oh, I write about tennis for a living? Like 10? Like as a full-time thing. Less than 20. Yeah, like six or seven. Yeah. You know? That not only just lists that they write about tennis, but that they make their money off tennis. Yeah. You know, I I think... Which is a distinction. It is a distinction because you can write about it. Like, you can write, like, a random column, like, every slam or like whatever but are you really paying attention to it on a daily basis are you offering your opinion are you putting yourself out there to really be critiqued and and to be criticized and you know i know that for myself you know because like i'm a bit more of an opinion writer and a commentary writer i put myself out there and people are going to say what they want to say and that's totally fine but when i see that happening with a lot of other writers within tennis who i've met have shooken hands with and who are good, good people who have done tremendous things like for the, the better of like, kind of like not just like the tennis writing industry, but just for tennis in general and to see kind of like really well-respected bloggers. I mean, bloggers that I respect kind of really discount them or think they're horrible human beings or all sorts of things. Like I, 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 I can't lie. Like I have a very visceral reaction to that where I'm like, you don't know. Like you can say that because you've never met this person. But if you had met that person or if you even had a conversation with me, like I could tell you, like I would vouch for this person. So, I mean, obviously it's complicated and, but because tennis is like this weird, very small world, like you see these things, you hear these things and they matter. Sadly. That's a good, it's a poignant note to end on, I guess, for this extended show. Uh, assuming this will be part 22B that we're signing <laughs> off on now. Have a lovely December, all of you. We'll be back sometime definitely before the end of this month and wrap up and pitch forward towards the new year, where we will see you on the flip side, literally, of the globe. So bye-bye. Bye, guys. I'm standing on my soapbox and saying bye-bye. <laughs> Don't fall. (laughs) It's getting close. 